You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. How many threads take us behind the scenes of the basketball world? On this episode, we start with Rich Cohen, author of When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. After the break, the author of Denied, Michelle J. Mano, joins the conversation. Rich Cohen, I first met, he may not remember for his book, Tough Jews, which I've never forgotten, still a very important book, is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the co-creator of HBO series Vinyl, which I loved, and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone. Rich, it's a pleasure to have a conversation with you again. Yeah, nice to talk to you. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. So let's break down the title. Why was it the NBA's greatest season? Well, you can argue that objectively that it had the most future NBA Hall of Famers playing at one time. Uh, It also had four great dynasties, each one of whom you could argue was the greatest NBA of all time, all playing the same season against each other and all in various states of rise and fall. So that would be like the Celtics, who had won the NBA Finals a few years before, and some people say that was the greatest team ever. That had Bird, McHale, Robert Parrish. Then, of course, the Showtime Lakers, who's on everyone's list. And they, you know, that was Magic, Kareem, Byron, Scott, James Worthy. And the Detroit Pistons, who are kind of overlooked, they were the bad boys. But I would argue that even though they didn't win the championship this year, they were probably the best team. And they really were one of the best teams of all time because they had virtually two starting teams. Their bench was so good. They were so balanced, and they had, you know, on that team, Isaiah Thomas, a criminally underrated player, historically. Uh, Vinnie Johnson, Dennis Rodman, John Sally, Joe Dumars, Rick Mahorn, and the inimitable Bill Lambeer. And then I always compared this season to Game of Thrones on the hard court because you don't really know who the hero really is. And to me, it's the team, the Bulls who weren't fully, they would turn out to be the best of them all. The Bull, It was the first year Michael Jordan won the MVP. It was the first year the Bulls had won 50 games and over 50 games in a long time. And the Bulls had the entire fit, uh, team that was going to be the dynasty. They just were in the background. So it was a rookie year for Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant, both playing on the bench. And Phil Jackson was there, but he was the assistant coach. And Michael Jordan was already Michael Jordan. So I've been following basketball for a long time. I go so far back, even before you, almost back to the time of your dad. And I remember the old Madison Square Garden. That entrance was iconic, especially when they had the big boxing matches there. That I remember when you and I was in high school, we had a geo card. We had a geo card. You could sit way up in the top and watch the Knicks play. But in those days, you were allowed to smoke. So all the smoke would rise way up to the top. But you can't forget those memories. Let's go back to you. I think you grew up in Chicago. What are your earliest memories of basketball? Well, I remember that smoke. So I'm old enough for that. I remember it especially when you go to concerts. And you'd be on the floor and you look up and just see this thick cloud of smoke above you. 
Um, I was lucky in that our version of the old Madison Square Garden still existed when I was a kid. It was Chicago Stadium, which the Madhouse on Madison, which had been built for boxing, like the old Madison Square Garden. So you were right on top of the action. It was, you know, so you sat in the top tier, you felt like you could fall into the arena. It was kind of scary. It was so steep. Right. And um, my father from Brooklyn had been a basketball coach. And he kind of, I didn't play basketball in it other than driveway basketball, mostly because he had been a basketball coach. And I watched what he did to my brother, and I didn't want that done to me. Like he would tie my brother's hand, right hand behind his back to make him go up his left hand for a week and all that kind of stuff. But he gave us a great admiration for what he called the Brooklyn style, which was kind of no harm, no foul. You know, you can make a layup, but the other side can make a layup, but they're going to pay for it. And, and and that he recognized that in the Detroit Pistons because that's how they played. That's why they were hated. But I guess my first memories, because when I was a kid, Chicago, the Bulls were bad. They had some star. They had been good for a few years, but they were bad. And they had, that was the team of Artis Gilmore, right. Reggie Theus, and they just weren't very good. Um, but the, the college basketball in the area and the high school basketball was incredible. So that's what we watched. College basketball had Ray Meyer was the coach of DePaul that was going undefeated. Indiana wasn't far away. That team won the national championship. Um, and there was, and Loyola was really good. But we really watched high school basketball. And that's how I got to know and really be a fan of Isaiah Thomas, who played in Chicago. Uh, and he would come and play at our local high school in tournaments and we could watch him. And he looked like he was about 10 years old and he was just a star an incredibly charismatic, incredibly athletic player who played much bigger than his size. And I would argue he's the only player, when they listed the top 50 players of all time in the, on the athletic, he was the only player under six feet tall on that list. And I'm not a very tall person myself. And my father always said, there's a lot of mediocre six foot 10 players in the NBA. There's no one under six feet tall in the NBA who's mediocre. I mean, you can't, you don't just have to be as good as those guys. You have to be better. And that's what Isaiah was. So let me give you another name for Chicago that you may remember because in my list of questions, I wanted you to talk about that. And you've already touched upon that. It's a basketball scene in Chicago from high school, actually even from middle school, high school, private high schools, college and pros. And it was one great tragedy. And that's, I think, was Benji Wilson, who's been on a documentary about the basketball scene in Chicago. And like Len Bias, he never got a chance. And it happened in yeah. high school. He never got a chance to show his skills, considered one of the greatest basketball players potentially to come out of Chicago. There are stories like that. One very traumatic thing when I was a kid was the Evansville basketball team. Do you remember that? Mm. I, do. I do. And that, yes. I do. I was following that team because that was a not very far away, small school, great team. And, you know, but as far as a lot of these guys, so in really in 19, the year I write about in the All-Star game, there were four players on the All-Star team from Chicago. But that's not even the thing. The thing is there were four players who all grew up on the same playground in Chicago, which was a playground called the Gladys on the west side of Chicago. And at that All-Star game from that court was Mo Cheeks, Isaiah Thomas. Right. Uh, Doc Rivers and Mark Aguirre, who played for DePaul. So, and when you talk to those guys, they always had the stories about the greatest players who didn't make it. 
something happened. Some of them died. Some of them got addicted to drugs. It was a very drugged out era. And including Isaiah Thomas's older brother, right, Lord Henry Thomas, who was always Isaiah's model, but had a drug problem and it kept him from fulfilling his basketball dreams. And probably, you know, Lord Henry Thomas became Isaiah's great sort of protector because he didn't want to happen to him to happen to his brother. So that's the thing is all these stories, especially the Chicago stories, they're all lived out on the street, which are the same as my father's Brooklyn stories. You know, you have the two worlds, the world on the basketball court and the world off the basketball court. And often these guys are on the basketball court all the time because that world makes a lot more sense and is easier to navigate. So let's reset. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Rich Cohn. The book is called When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. I want to do six degrees of separation, if you don't mind. In the past, I have, I have sat down with John Feinstein. And John was very close to Red Auerbach, who I believe you also met and talk about. And every Tuesday, they all used to get together and have lunch and tell stories. And John was part of that. And he couldn't call it Tuesdays with Red because Mitch Album had the book Tuesdays with Maury. So what did you tell us a story about Red Arbeck, one of the greatest coaches of all time, and always used to lit up, lit up the cigar and when the game was being won and agitated a lot of the opponents and a lot of the players, but that was Red. Yeah. Well, one of the things I thought was really funny was um, Chuck Nevitt, who was a 12th man that year on the Lakers, and he was often the 12th man. They called him the human victory cigar because when he came in the game, he knew the game was over. Um, Red Arrowback, you know, I, I grew up sort of hearing the legend of Red Arrowback. I'm younger than John. Uh, so I, that was, and I'm not really a sports writer. I just write about sports. So, um, and I kind of write from the fan of uh, perspective of a fan as much as from the perspective of sort of a professional sports writer. But uh, my father grew up with Larry King. Larry King knew everybody. I went to Tulane. This is a story from my book. but And uh, Larry would come down once or twice a year and do his radio show. This right. is when he had the mutual broadcasting show from a remote, they called it, in New Orleans. And um, when he would do that, I was at school there. He would take me out to dinner. Usually we'd have dinner with the guest on his show. And then afterwards, we'd all go to his show because his show didn't start until 11.05. And... Um, he took me out to dinner once with Red Arrowback. And that was incredibly exciting. And I I knew, unlike a person, other people my age, maybe, I don't know, I knew everything about Red Arrowback. From how he got, you know, uh, Kevin McHale and um, Robert Parrish, basically, in one draft year, you know, to how he got the rights to Bill Russell by trading not another player, but the Ice Capades to uh, the Rochester Royals. So... Um, and he told a great story because my father wrote a book, You Can Negotiate Anything. It was really a negotiating story about how he negotiated with Bob Wolf, who was uh, the agent for Bird and a lot of other people. I also knew Bob Wolf better because my father was friends with Bob Wolf. And I'd heard this story from Bob Wolf. We stayed at his house in Cape Cod. And um, the story was that Bob Wolf got more money out of Red Arrowback than he'd ever paid anybody for Bird before Bird played his rookie year. A million dollars, which no rookie ever got, created some irritation among the veterans. And after all that, uh, he wanted a bonus uh, if Bird made the all-rookie team. And Red Arrowback went crazy and said, you want a bonus if he makes the all-rookie team? I'm paying him. A, he's a rookie making a million dollars a year. 
How about you pay me a bonus if he doesn't make the all-rookie team? There you go. That was really a good point there, I thought. Well, once again, a quick story from me growing up in my neighborhood, around the corner from me, growing up, was Michael Jordan's agent. Uh-huh. And, of course, look what he did with this main client, Michael Jordan. Yeah. For, for me, what, what I do and what you do, I think, is all based in relationships. So I'm going to mention some names and let you elucidate on these particular names that I'm putting together from your book. The first two names I want to mention for a lot of reasons and different kinds of characteristics and personalities was Rodman and Isaiah. Right. Because come together, you know, they're so different and coming from different backgrounds. And Dennis Rodman was very, very needy. Isaiah Thomas knew who he was. And even though he was diminutive, didn't take anything from anybody, he kind of knew who he was. Yeah. Well, Rodman was unusual. He was a 25-year-old rookie. And like a lot of these great players, he grew late, which required, which caused him to develop skills that a smaller player has to survive on the basketball court. But he didn't even play high school basketball. He wasn't good enough. He was small. And he played, you know, uh, playground basketball. And then after he graduated from high school, he grew a foot in a year. So he had this very tenacious little guy way he played, except now he's a big guy. And he ended up going, you know, to a small college and and nobody really noticed him. This was the kind of thing a good GM could do back then. You can't really do now because everything's filmed and everything's on tape. But uh the uh, Krause, you know, Jerry Krause, the GM of the Bulls, got word of this guy. They saw him. They said, look great. And then he kind of disappeared in the postseason tournaments. And he sent somebody to find out what happened, if he just quit or why he wasn't playing well. And he found out that Rodman had really bad asthma that had never been treated. So he did very well in the winter tournaments. But when spring hay fever started, he couldn't breathe. So the Bulls, uh, the the Pistons, it wasn't Krause, I'm sorry, it was a uh, McCormick, the Pistons. The Pistons drafted him and uh, much lower than they would have. There's no reason to waste a pick. They would have drafted him number one, but they were able to get two great players in that one draft. They drafted him on the same round as John Sally. They got him to an allergist, and he became this incredibly great uh, player, Hall of Famer. But the problem is his father had abandoned him. He had all these siblings. He'd been kicked out of his house. He'd been arrested for stealing watches at an airport and he was a very insecure needy person who bonded with his team as if his team was his family which created him all kinds of problems because if he got yelled at by the coach it was like the end of the world right and if he didn't get played it was the end of the world and then when the coach uh who was chuck daly left the pistons it was like rodden felt he'd been abandoned again it's just a professional doing his job as a coach so you know we we see that and I loved watching Rodman because he was like a method actor in that everything was on the surface. Everything was so raw. You could tell when he was upset. You could tell when he was happy. He would lose his temper, but he was a beautiful, beautiful basketball player. So I want to go to the on-court relationships, if, if you don't mind. And that's the on-court relationships between somebody that really cared about the game, and that's Larry Bird. Yeah. And also an, another unique personality, Kevin McHale. Was Bird irritated with, with McHale the way he approached the game? For 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 um, you know Michael, the game was everything. He was a perfectionist. He was a leader, 
but he wanted everybody to follow. And if you were a little different than him, he thought you were kind of slacking off. Is that an accurate assessment with his relationship with Mikhail? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that Bird was all in the basketball. That's all he cared about. That's all he thought about. And he was interested in, you know, being his very, very best every single night. And he thought that Mikhail had the talent to be one of the greatest players of all time, but sort of turned it on and turned it off when he sort of felt like it. And it irritated him. And he lashed out at Mikhail for that. But the result is Bird was a better basketball player and probably an unhappier person. Mikhail was, you know, a great basketball player, not quite Bird, but he had a happier life. So you can ask, you know, I once had, I once said to my father, I'm unhappy. What can I do? He said, good. Happy people never created anything in the world. They never did anything. Unhappiness breeds progress. And that's kind of like was the case with Bird and what he wanted from Mikhail, but Mikhail was too well adjusted to give him. So one cor a correction, I should have said Larry Bird. I said Michael Jordan. So oh, I want to correct that. Uh, we'll probably clean that up in post, but I want to make sure I'm accurate in terms of my initial yeah, question. I didn't even notice. Yep. So let's talk about relationships in terms of rivalries. One of the great, great rivalries with a lot of layers below the surface based on where they came initially to where they ended up was Magic and Isaiah. Can you talk about that? Well, one thing I realized as I worked on this book is, I guess I knew it at some subconscious levels, this really is a Midwestern story. I was writing about four players and three of them, with the exception of Jordan, are all Midwesterners. And they all grew up on Midwestern courts. Uh, Isaiah's from, you know, Chicago, played on Chicago courts, a very urban style of basketball. Magic was from basically a suburb of Detroit and played in a similar way. Magic was older and Magic was sort of revolutionary in that he was a guy who was whatever he was, six foot seven, six foot eight, who played point guard and went to Michigan and everybody tried to move him to forward because that's the, you're supposed to play forward. And he refused. That's why he went to Michigan State and said in Michigan, they let him play point guard. And he revolutionized that position with his passing because he had this incredible court vision because he could see over everybody. And Isaiah was a little guy trying to play point guard at the highest level. And he learned a lot and came to really look up to Magic. And Magic uh, sort of befriended and mentored him. And they became very close, like brothers. They would, they would go on vacations together in the offseason. They would play together. When Isaiah had really frustrating times in the NBA, he called Magic up and cried on the phone. But in the end, they met in the year I write about, they met in the finals. And in the finals, it was like they were great friends, but after one throne. And it was what was going to give. And Pat Riley, who was the coach of the Lakers, because uh, Isaiah and uh, Magic would kiss center court right. before each game. And it drove everybody crazy on those teams because, you know, you're supposed to be enemies with these people. Riley said, at some point, you're going to have to choose between your friend and your team. And I hope you make the right choice. And that night, uh, Isaiah was coming down the lane and Magic just laid him out, you know. And there's all these different reasons why their friendship went sour, including what happened with the Dream Team and Michael Jordan and all this stuff. But the real, the real cause of it was that night. They were never friends again in the same way after that night. So there are little nuggets in this book that I knew nothing about. I am a basketball fan, so I love reading this book because it brings back a lot of memories of this season and what you write about. What is the origins 
of Michael Jordan's tongue always hanging uh-huh. out? Well, all history is personal history, and all style and fashion is history. So basically, Michael Jordan's father, who was like an engineer and a mechanic uh, uh, in North Carolina, when he would work on his own projects in the driveway of the house and was really concentrating, he would stick his tongue out. And his son, when concentrating or something, would do the same thing as fathers imitate sons. Maybe that's genetic. Maybe that's learned behavior. I don't know. But the result is that when Jordan would go up in a moment of intense concentration, he'd stick his tongue out just like his father. And everybody who knew his father knew what he was doing. And then every kid in suburban Chicago who was playing basketball in the driveway when they would go up to shoot the ball would stick their tongues out because they were imitating Michael Jordan, they thought, but they were really imitating Michael Jordan's father, an older engineer. So I have something that I call going against the grain, and you can agree or disagree. I'm going to give you some names about people I think went against the grain in terms of what they represented and their personalities and what they believe in, their core beliefs. First name is going to be A.C. Green. I'm going to give you another one, and that's that's Jabbar. I think Jabbar always went against the grain in terms of what he believed, in terms of how he was as a teammate, in terms of being kind of aloof, but that was Jabbar. Also, Phil Jackson, who I love to this day, even though he didn't didn't work out with the Knicks. Jerry uh, uh, Krause, GM, everybody used to laugh about, was very good at what he did. And another character that I really liked in the book called Leon the Barber. So I'm throwing a lot of names out there. You can go anywhere you want. But I think in my mind, my take of the book, they all went against the grain. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Krause, who was the GM of the Bulls, was kind of like, Short, overweight, not a great athlete himself, and the and he's a guy that Michael Jordan called crumbs, and Jordan was always fighting with him because he wanted Kraus, he wanted to tell Kraus who to draft, and he almost always wanted to draft people from North Carolina where he went, and Kraus had a great eye for talent, much better than Michael Jordan. Look at Michael Jordan's tenure, you know, at North at uh, Charlotte. He wasn't a good, he's a great player, not a right. great executive. Right. So. And Krauss was a genius executive and great at finding hidden talent, which would include, as I said, he found Scottie Pippen, who was off the radar. He found um, Charles Oakley, who's at a small school, who was off the radar. He made a great trade, though very unpopular, you know, of Oakley for Bill Cartwright, which solved the Bulls' problem at center. So, uh, and he found Tony Kukos. If you remember Tony Kukos a little later, he found Steve Curry. He found all these guys. And he did that because he really didn't, he wasn't really swayed by people's pedigree, what college they went to, who would coach them, or how they looked. And um, people would always say the rub on him was, well, sure, he built this dynasty, which won six championships in eight years, but Michael Jordan was already there when he got the job. And anybody can win championships with Michael Jordan. Well, the fact is Jordan didn't win for whatever it is, six seasons or something, until Krauss started putting that team together and figured out how to put the team together. And uh, as far as Michael Jordan, anybody could have picked Michael Jordan if you had the number three pick and he was available. I could have picked him. All you had to do was be somebody who watched college basketball. He was the most high prospect. It was simple to pick him. Picking, uh, picking Scottie Pippen, finding Scottie Pippen in Arkansas, that's the trick. 
and realizing that there's a role on the team in the NBA for a guy like uh, Bill Wennington. Right. You know, St. John's. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he was absolutely as crucial as any of the players in putting that team together. And he just wasn't liked because he just wasn't one of the people, one of the guys. And he didn't look good. And he didn't try to, but weirdly, he and Rodman really bonded. I think Rodman sensed that he was this kind of outsider who was not treated well by right. a lot of people. Right. And he had sympathy for him. And he tells his story, uh, Krauss, who's not alive anymore, Krauss had this little dog that he loved he, that was like his kid. And they made fun of him for his little dog. And his little dog died. And Rodman sent him like a bouquet of flowers and sat with him and talked to him and they cried together. You know what in terms of the final, the NBA finals in that season, what is your biggest takeaway? Would that surprise us in terms of the drama of that finals matchup in that particular season when the game was, was war? Well, it was a game was war because it was such a violent, rough era. It isn't as rough anymore by and for some reasons as a response to the pistons who would basically pummel teams in a submission and what you really what i really liked about it that year was this quality in sports which is in the end it's not even about talent it's about grit about who can get up more times than they're knocked down and that was isaiah thomas personification of grit isaiah thomas in the course of those playoffs was knocked out, knocked out cold, unconscious on the court twice. And both times he came back into the game, which I guess they probably wouldn't even let him do now, right? right? He came back into the game and he not only played well, he played great. He played better than he had before. And it was like Isaiah Thomas played his best basketball after he'd been hurt. And not because he was angry, I don't think, because it somehow it focused him. And um, that's a quality you take into the rest of your life, which is what do you do when setbacks come? And in the finals in game six, which I started the book with, Isaiah Thomas severely injured his ankle, looked like he broke his ankle, and playing on one ankle, knowing this was the chance to win the championship, he had the greatest single quarter in NBA playoff history, never been broken, everything he shot went in, it was transcendent, and I always think of that moment when I'm feeling crappy and I'm feeling bad, but I still have to do my job. So I've been following your professional career for years, going way back to Tough Jews and the book we did a um, conversation about Sweet and Low. And we kind of lost track. And my one of my best friends in the writing world is Kevin Baker. And Kevin put me back in touch with you. So I want to thank Kevin, too. So yeah, you, you've, you've worked with some amazing people. I want to mention two names that you were involved with, and you can tell us what that relationship was like. Martin Scorsese and Terrence Winter, both very, very talented people. How did you guys come together? Well, I didn't work with, I mean, I know Terrence Winter, I've talked to him and worked with him a little, but we worked on the same project, but he he came in later. So I didn't really work with him so closely, work with him, work with him. More like I'd done most of my work. The person I really worked with was Scorsese. And that was great because he's a, I grew up with those movies, the greatest movies ever made. I love his work. And he's a great guy who is interested not just in making a movie, but in having an experience and going into a whole area of the world, which was record executives. 
and was very supportive person. And, you know, while working with him, he was also teaching me about his favorite movies, which he doesn't need to do. But that was just the way he did it. It was like Jedi training. Right. So he would he would have me go. He has a screening room on the Upper East Side. And he would say, OK, I'm going to call the screening room. I want you to watch this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie. So it was part writing a script, which became vinyl. And it was part learning the whole history, you know, of movies and learning about different directors. And it was a relationship. I still talk to him, but it was a relationship that was intense like that for a long time. Very important to me. And really one of the lucky things in my life that I got hooked up with him. I want to mention one other TV series that I liked and disappeared. I think you were involved with it. And that was called Magic City taking oh, yeah. place in Miami. The cast was amazing. Danny Houston, tremendous cast. I love it. I think it ran maybe for two seasons. You know, algorithms kill, kill everything in these days. But I want to tell you. I really enjoyed that. And you, tell us about your involvement in that series. Well, that was a great experience because I was in the writer's room. With the Scorsese thing, I created it. So it was just me and him and then me and some other people. But this was like the sh I was hired to be one of the writers in the writer's room, something I've always been curious about. And I moved to L.A. where the writer's room was for a year or whatever, which I was curious about, too, what it'd be like to live in L.A. And... The show was really fun. It was really fun to do. It's not writing the way I normally do it. I, I like to write alone and to disappear into my head. It's very social. and um, But the group of people I worked with were like the most talented people I've ever worked with. And just for that experience. And I really like them. And I'm friends with all of them. So from that show, Magic City, and I love the idea of Magic City, which is kind of Miami. I thought of it as kind of about the Fontainebleau Hotel. Right. And the idea was... It sort of starts with the fall of Batista, which is the end of Godfather II, when all the uh, rich people from Cuba run away, running away turn up in the Fontainebleau, and Meyer Lansky's there, and, and, and you know John Kennedy's there, and the whole world is at the Fontainebleau. And we never got to go all the way to the end. It's Mitch Glazer's show. But he had a great idea, which was the show continues, the end of the show, the finale, the last two episodes would be the assassination of John F. Kennedy, right. which marks the end of that era. And then the last episode, like an epilogue, would be the Beatles arriving to perform in Miami four months later, which is the start of a whole other era. So before we come to the end of this conversation in the first part of the segment of Artful Periscope, I'd like to end with, I'd like to be criticized for what I missed or what I got wrong. So Rich Cohen, what did I miss and or what did I get wrong? I don't think you got anything wrong. I don't think you missed anything. The thing that I thought that was so interesting about this book is it was the greatest season in the history of the NBA. And you really saw what not just writing about the players, but about the GMs and how these teams are built. So one thing when I was a kid is the Pistons were very, very hated because they were seen as very dirty. They were the bad boys. They were very violent and they thwarted the Bulls. And I, I was a Bulls fan. And, um, the fact is, when you look at it, you realize what was the job of the Pistons in those years? It wasn't to win the NBA Finals. It was to beat the Celtics. They couldn't get anywhere if they couldn't beat the Celtics. The Celtics had the biggest front line in NBA history, an all-Hall of Fame front line, where Bird was the small guy. And then there was basically two seven-footers who were very physical, Parrish and uh, McHale. And to beat the bullies, they saw them as the bullies, the Pistons had to become bigger bullies than the bullies. And that team was built specifically to beat the Celtics. 
and the Celtics had been beat specifically to beat the 76ers, who had been the Dr. J team, which was also a very tough team. So you realize that the way these teams evolve is you don't just try to create the greatest team you can create. You have to create a team to beat a specific opponent, especially when the when the sides of the league were so different. And what I really admire about Isaiah is Isaiah, had he gone to the Bulls, would have scored 35 points a night. Right. But when he got to Detroit, he wanted to win so bad, he realized what the goal was, got to beat the Celtics. And to beat the Celtics, they needed a completely balanced attack. So Isaiah's attitude was, if if anybody on this team scores more than 20 points a night, we have failed. The, 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 the scoring has to be completely balanced. And that gets to the big lesson, which is if you look at the stats, you can't judge Isaiah Thomas by looking at the stats because people look at points. He wasn't interested in points. He did it when necessary, but that wasn't his. That wasn't the Pistons' game. And he had these other qualities of leadership, tenacity, grit, and just being an incredibly talent, a creative guy who could create points that you they can't turn up in statistics, but they're the most important skills there are in any sport. Well, the book is terrific. It's titled When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. The author is Rich Cohen. Rich, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to touch base with you. I look forward to what else you're doing in the future. Thank you so much. All right, man. You too. Nice being back in touch. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. After the break, the author of Denied Women, Sports, and the Contradictions of Identity, Michelle J. Mano, joins the conversation. Be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest, Michelle J. Mano, is a sociologist and the assistant provost for diversity and inclusion at a great university, Northwestern University. She's the author of Denied Women, Sports, and the Contradictions of Identity. And Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Larry, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, not I am not that intelligent, but I know where to steal quotes from. And this comes from <laughs> Kafka, who a lot of people know. Kafka-esque is what people refer to. He said, the ideal book should be an axe for the frozen sea within us. So in terms of what you do, if it is a frozen scene, sea, and you have an axe in your hand. In terms of this book, because it's so important, what are you addressing? What are you trying to do in terms of breaking that frozen sea? Or as they say in the corporate world, that glass ceiling. Yeah. Well, you know, when I think about this book and sort of what led me to, to write it, to research it in the first place, it's essentially to encourage people to look at the institution of sports as we would any number of social institutions. So things like education, healthcare, government, right? The criminal justice system. There's a lot of work across disciplines that does some really interesting things in, in taking a kind of critical lens, right? A critical eye towards uh, looking at both the benefits of these social institutions, but also the ways in which they reproduce inequities. And so that is something that's always been very curious to me as a sociologist is how can we sort of zoom out, if you will, and look at these institutions, especially something like sports, where 
even if you don't like sports, right, it sort of infiltrates your life, right? It's it's all over our culture. It's deeply embedded in, uh, especially as Americans, you know, how we kind of live our everyday life. And so I was curious to, you know, if I'm thinking of the axe and the frozen sea, I'm curious to sort of swing that axe and encourage people to look a little bit deeper um, you know, underneath the surface level and to see what might be going on, particularly when it comes to women athletes and their experiences in this institution. That's a fascinating way you put that, because I think we live in a very superficial world. We, it's, mm. almost a, it's a knee-jerk world right now. You know, we get our news and snippets and it's a 24-hour cycle. So how far do you think we are willing to go as readers in terms of the depths of this book, because that's one of the aspects that you do exceedingly well, but you really dive in. Thank you. Yeah, that was a really important piece of writing this book for me. I, you know, I wanted to draw in people who uh, maybe haven't done a lot of reading of academic books in particular, which uh, sometimes can be dense, they can be jargony, they can be hard for people to uh, to find a, a point of entry. And so um, part of what I think was, I hope I was successful in with this book is encouraging people to dig deep through the stories of the players themselves. So, you know, I can, I can analyze and I can kind of pontificate in the book all day, but I tried to really let the stories of the players, their own experiences, the things that, the things that they've shared with me to really shine through to encourage the reader to uh, really kind of wade in, right, and, and to dig deep into the, um, the larger messages that come from those stories. So let's, let's talk about sports in a second. I'm going to tell you where I'm going. When a game of basketball is going well, there is a flow. When it's not going well, the refs are constantly blowing the whistle and stop and start and stop and start. There's a note in your book about language. Language has a flow. Some people mm -hmm. understand it. Some people are great at it. And some people have to work at it. In terms of language as a powerful tool, how did you use that in terms of the flow of this book? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, language is an incredibly powerful tool. It's also a tool that's been used, I think, to exclude people. Um, so again, if I'm thinking about writing, right, and storytelling, the language we use can invite people in and it can bring them along or it can sort of stop them at the door. And so there was kind of two important things for me with this book as it related to language. The first is, is what I was saying before, which is, can I write this book in an accessible way? Can I appeal to readers who, uh, like I said, maybe don't have a lot of experience with this material, haven't read a lot of academic work, maybe feel uh, who knows about sports, um, but also, and I think probably more importantly when it comes to this book, is this book is ultimately about identity, um, the many kinds of identities that we all hold, and in particular that women athletes um, uh, hold and negotiate and navigate in the institution of sports. And so I wanted to be really, really mindful about the language I was using to describe them, um, as well as to nod to the fact that language is ever evolving, I mean, particularly when we talk about language and terminology around identity, we've seen dramatic shifts in how we talk about things like race, for example, or gender over time, right? Um, and a lot of those efforts are great because they make our language more inclusive. They can fit more people into our categories, um, but they can also exclude in, in much the same way. And so it really is kind of this delicate dance I was trying to do throughout the book 
to describe things accurately, to describe them in the way the players or the, the people in the book would have described themselves, um, but to also kind of push people to be thinking critically at the same time. Now, I don't know if you had a chance to watch documentaries because I know you're very busy at Northwestern, but it's a great mm-hmm. documentary that Errol Morris did and called The Pigeon Tunnel. And The Pigeon Tunnel is his interview with David Cornwell, who wrote as John Le Carrier. And my biggest takeaway was from the interview, because you only see Le Carrier and David Cornwell's responses, and you hear the questions off camera. And basically, both of them said, because when um, David Cornwell was a spy during World War II, he did interrogations. And I think about what I do and what you do, and we'll further explore this. Interviews, in a sense, can be a form of interrogations. Are you interrogating me in the same time I'm interrogating you in a positive sense? Because both of us want to learn about each other. And by extrapolation, the listeners will learn about the book and what you do. That's so interesting to to have you put it that way. I mean, I think certainly, you know, in, in some ways, interviews can feel like interrogations. I think probably interviews that aren't that great <laughs> would feel like an interrogation. Um, I'm not feeling that from you, uh, I'll, I'll say. Um, but I do think what you're pointing to, um, without necessarily saying as much, is the role of power in an interview dynamic. Um, and that's something that I certainly thought about as I was doing the research for this book, not just um, in the interviews, but doing the actual ethnography. So the, the time in which I spent with the team working as their team manager, I was fully aware during this whole time that I held a level of power as it related to my role that was undoubtedly impacting the experience. And then particularly when we think about the interview, the players are, you know, they're sitting across from me. I'm asking them all these questions about their experience. Some of some of the questions are, are pretty personal and ask them to dig into experiences that maybe are troubling or painful for them. And so, um, you know, again, my hope is that it didn't feel like an interrogation. And I think as you know, Larry, when, when you're an interviewer, you do a lot of work to build rapport and trust right. um, with folks so that it doesn't feel that way. But it's something we always have to be mindful of. So why did you change the name of the university you worked at? And by extrapolation, you had to change the name of the coaches, the staff, and the players. Because me being me, I want to know who these people are because I said yeah. I've, I love women's yeah. basketball. And all the stuff goes around that, and I follow it as much as I can. And I said, people know to listen to me too often. Uh, my daughter was a wonderful basketball player, starting in elementary school, CYO, AAU team went to the Nationals in Florida, and then she ended up being the captain of her high school basketball team and was a terrific three-point shooter as the off-guard, even though she couldn't handle the ball. So I'm wondering, about, <laughs> I, I want to know where this university was. You can't tell us, but that's part of me. I did my homework, and then I realized, because I recognized some of the teams they played against, but I'm, and I'm wondering about who was the coach, who are the main mm-hmm. players. So you got my attention. And my curiosity. Oh, well, good. <laughs> well, good, Larry. That's the point. Um, and kudos to your daughter. It sounds it sounds like she had a tremendous career. So that's very cool. Um, so yes, all of the names in the book, the name of the team itself, Midwest State University, um, as well as all of the players, all of the coaches are pseudonyms. And that's done, you know, first and foremost, out of a desire to protect the identities of the people involved. Um I'm very careful to 
um, make it so that the, the most curious of readers like yourself, Larry, would have a very hard time figuring out um, who this team is uh, and who the players are. Um, that's a kind of standard practice when we do academic research. Um, and it was absolutely an important element in my negotiations with the team prior to joining them was that I would uh, be very careful to protect their identities um, and to keep uh, to keep the most sensitive information confidential. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to take the stories um, but not necessarily put uh, the players on display in a way that may not feel comfortable for them. One just like small note about the pseudonyms is that I did ask uh, everyone in the book if they wanted to choose their own. And um, many of them did and, and, and some of them didn't. So some of the more fun ones that you might see in there are, are kind of chosen by the players themselves. So, so being the parent of a female athlete who was a three-sport athlete, although basketball was her primary sport, she did run cross-country. She did uh, play lacrosse. As a younger kid, uh, she played softball. She's only two girls in the whole league, flag football league. So I've been involved in this world for a long time. But W.B. Du Bois had something he called tunis. And I wonder if you can address that in terms of female athletes. Is there a version of Tunis? Is there a dichotomy? Is there a push-pull between who they are as athletes and who they are as people in terms of their own self-image? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's really, Larry, essentially what the book is about. Um, I don't use Du Bois's notion of Tunis. Um, I use more specifically uh, the phrase cultural contradiction or um, what's often mentioned in the literature is, is the woman-athlete paradox. But it's essentially the same idea, right? That as women who are participating in an institution like sport that was not made with them in mind, they are sort of always navigating this tension between what it means to be athletic, which if we think about what those characteristics are, they align most closely with our understandings of what it means to be masculine, right? Masculinity, aggression, competitiveness, strength, right? Um, and that's in tension with, um, for many of these athletes, what it means for them to be appropriately feminine by societal standards. Um, regardless of whether or not they actually wanted to be, there was that pressure to be, right? And the characteristics that we attach to femininity are, are the opposite of, of masculinity, right? So it's passivity, it's deference, it's smallness, right? And so that, I would say, is the biggest dichotomy um, that the players were dealing with. Of course, one of the most important parts of my book is that I wanted to explore beyond just that contradiction between gender and athleticism and also think about the ways that other identities like race and sexuality matter and shape the player's experiences. So one issue I've tried to explore in the past, because this podcast I think is pretty eclectic in terms of fiction, nonfiction, singers, songwriters, and everything else, and I'm not patting my, myself on the back because <laughs> I just have to fall into a lot of great people that come on this podcast, is the aspect of um, – what I would call, and, you, and maybe you will call something differently, confirmation bias. So as a researcher, are you, do you have to get into your own hidden terms of confirmation bias? Sure. I mean, I think we all do all the time, right, especially in research. Um, I think going into any uh, study like this, you know, I had certain things I was looking for. Um, and, yeah, I think there's always uh, the possibility that, in the process of looking for something, you inevitably uh, and unintentionally exclude out other things. 
Um, and so what I think is important when I think about this work um, is that, you know, the, the things I'm writing about, the big themes, you know, they didn't apply across the board to every athlete. Um, these are, this is really specific to this point in time, this particular team, this context, and that's going to be different um, right across the board. And so um, I, I try to be careful not to generalize in a way that would assume that the things that I come up with or the things that the players, you know, mentioned to me as it relates to this context would be applicable across the board. I think there are some things we can make generalizations about, but um, that is something that I think is really important. Um, I will say, though, related to that, uh, that I was, in fact, quite surprised um, by what a lot of what I found. I When I went into this setting, I was fairly convinced that the things that I was interested in exploring were things that may have been challenges for women athletes in the past, but weren't anymore in the contemporary moment. Um, and in fact, I, I found that that's not the case, right? And they're still navigating a lot of these things. So that was an interesting kind of surprise for me. So I want to go inside the player's experience during the holiday season where they're still on campus, but everybody's gone home for the holidays. And they all kind of get together and they do their own version of a hip hop video. And, and this video, I guess, was got online. Um, they were just having fun. But yeah. there were some interesting reactions. Give us the insight about what the video was all about and what were the reactions pro and con. Yeah, so you described it perfectly. So the, the team was on winter break, which, you know, for most students means that they kind of go off and, and they're sort of off campus for a month. Um, but for the players, you know, they're mid-season at that point. And so they were stuck on campus. The weather was bad, so they were sort of looking for something fun to do in their dorm rooms, and they decided, like you said, to reenact a popular music video at the time. So, you know, one of them has their phones out and they're filming, the other sort of interacting, the different roles in the video. Um, and in this particular video, there was a lot of scenes in which the, the players who were acting as uh, some of the women in the video were maybe scantily clad, right? There was um, sexual innuendo in the video, et cetera, et cetera. But like you said, they, uh, they were having a good time. They thought it was funny. They put it on the internet. Um, and then um, they were met with some pretty swift reaction from the coaching staff. And, um, you know, the first and most explicit reason for that, um, as named by the coaches, was that they thought that the video portrayed what they called girl-on-girl -girl action. So simply kind of queerness on display um, for other people to see. And why they were particularly concerned about that is because the team ended up doing a lot of work, a lot of image-related work around making themselves appear not necessarily all straight, mm. but a team in which um, the majority of the players were not gay. Um, and that's important because there is this phenomenon in women's sports, and I think in women's basketball in particular, called negative recruiting, right. in which teams will use the presumed or um, actual sexuality of uh, players or coaches to dissuade recruits from joining those teams. So they really kind of weaponize sexuality in that way to uh, create a sort of culture of fear, uh, primarily for parents. Uh, um, and so, so the coaches were reacting, I think, to that, to that context and knowing that in the wrong hands, that type of video would not be seen as a sort of a harmless attempt at fun, but would really be used as a way to try to discredit and, and um, uh, you know, uh, send a lot of 
uh, harmful messages ab about the team. It, the other thing, though, um, the, the something that I talk about, I think there's a level of analysis here that's important, again, when we think about race. So it wasn't just about um, women acting out roles of men and women, right, and this quote-unquote girl-on-girl action, but it was... Um, you know, most of the players on the team are black. And so it was this also particular representation of blackness, of women acting out black masculinity and queer black masculinity in this way that I think also became sort of additionally problematic for the for the team. And that connects to these kind of larger ideas in society we have around what sort of black masculinity means, right? And the need to sort of uh, contain and control those bodies or those embodiments. Uh, Mark Anthony Neal talks about body legibility, and I use that concept as a way to help understand a little bit of what was happening in, in that moment. So let's enlarge on what you just said. Coming out of the Me Too era and generation, we've been talking about, in a lot of different ways, female agency. And I think this is part of what you address, female agency. Own who you are, and don't be intimidated. Yeah, yeah. I I appreciate you bringing that up because I think the issue of agency is something you know, I talk about it a little bit in the book. I think, but there's certainly a case to be made for talking more about it. And to also question, you know, certainly uh, agency is important here. And I think when we think about women's sports at large and the progress that we've made over time for women's sports, we see um, the importance of agency. Uh, in that way. But also, we're all sort of operating at the same time under these larger structural constraints. It's interesting to think about the role of agency uh, from a sociology perspective um, as it connects to structural constraints. So certainly in the context of this book, we can talk about and think about how the players had agency to do certain things or not do certain things, but they're also operating in an institution right, that has a lot of power over them. They're operating in a society right, that has these structures, um, structures of, of inequity around gender or race, for example, that are also constraining. And so certainly it's true that we can uh, enact agency in certain ways within those constraints, but I don't think it's necessarily just that um, you know, women athletes are sort of, it's just a matter of deciding to uh, to be agentic in that way. So a D1 athlete is very demanding, whether it's male or female, on that level, because they're on campus in the summer, they have a break, but they're constantly 10 months out of the year involved with the program. And after the season ends, they're, you know, and they're helping out with recruiting and everything else. And one of the issues that's being addressed right now, it's a very important issue, is the issue of mental health. Did you have any discussions with the coaching staff and or the players about the players' mental health? In some cases, even the coaches are under a lot of stress. Mental health is, is such a crucial element to, I think, the story of athletes in general, certainly the story of, of you know, students and higher ed, I think it's a tremendously important thing to consider. You know, I will say that I think it's gotten more attention recently. So when I was doing the research for this book, I think we were not quite where we are now in terms of um, really paying close attention. But I can speak to the fact that 
um, the pressures you mentioned and the pressures that I talk about in the book, I think definitely took a mental and emotional toll on the athletes and on the coaches. Um, and it's pressure again, not just to succeed, right? So they have to be tremendous athletes. They have to be uh, great students, right? They also have to, uh, and this is the big point I'm making in the book, they have to expend a significant amount of cognitive resources around being um, sort of exactly as others expect of them around gender presentation, around how they show up, around what they look like, what they act like, what they do. Um, and those pressures all take a toll. Um, the other reality of college athletes, as you know, Larry, is, is that it's a demanding physical toll, and the athletes experience a lot of injury that then takes them out of playing, and that has its own sort of effect on mental health. And so, um, you know, I think... Again, at the time, um, I don't think they were paying enough attention to it, certainly. Um, and, you know, I describe a lot of the behaviors of the head coach in particular. And what I would say is I think that uh, there's some more that could have been done there around thinking about the connection of her style on the player's mental health because uh, she was certainly tough. Yeah, it's in my notes, and I was going to bring it up earlier because we, we can only go so far with demands on your time. She had a lot of Bobby Knight inside of her in that locker room doing the heft. I'm just saying, I'm here. I don't know if she throws chairs, but I'm saying, boy, she sounds like Bobby Knight. And I'll, uh, yeah, you're shaking you're your head, and, I, right. and I'll leave it at that. So I want to just explore two more things on a more personal level. Since we've now had this discussion, I'm assuming you've had a lot of interviews based on this book, and I hope there's more coming. It's published by NYU Press, and I love them. We've done a lot of books in the past. Are you more comfortable? And I'm, I'm talking about comfort zones, and I'll tell you why. I had an interview with a novelist, a female novelist, and we started talking. And part of the conversation went to she's probably more comfortable being interviewed by another writer because they understand what she does. And I kept my mouth shut because I've been doing this for decades, but that's okay. So, and be honest, are, would you be more comfortable talking about somebody that understands your world maybe better than I do? Or is this conversation okay? Because my experiential base is probably a lot different than yours and some of the players but I wonder if there is a comfort zone for you in terms of who you'd rather have a conversation with. I really appreciate that question, Larry. I have to say, I don't feel um, that the best conversations that I have certainly about my work are necessarily the ones I have with people who are the most like me or have the most experience like me. And, I, and I'll tell you why. I mean, I think first and foremost, I think we learn and have the most interesting conversations from people who are different from us. Um, but I think beyond that, I think one of the challenges I had in writing this book is that I was very familiar with the setting. So having been a former Division One basketball player myself, um, I remember early on in the research process having to... Um, almost like remind myself explicitly that the things I'm seeing and taking for granted is just a natural part of how this setting operates is not something that everybody truly understands. And so I had to like, it's the fish, the fish out of water um, metaphor. I had to really remove myself and say, okay, if I hadn't had this experience, 
would I be looking at this differently or, or what would it mean to me? And so I see that, I see similarities in conversation with people. So in, in interviews like this one, you having your own perspective or anyone else having their own perspective and lived experience, you bring that into the space and you can ask questions that I might not even think about, right? Or somebody who uh, knows this world intimately wouldn't necessarily think to ask. And so uh, frankly, I, I think in some ways it can be more interesting when we step out of those spaces and we um, just look at look at the book, for example, through different lenses personally. So let's get personal for a second, if you don't mind, we kind of okay. wind this down sure. before the buzzer goes off. No basketball <laughs> references there. It's, right now, if this conversation ends and we say goodbye to you and thank you once again, and somebody knocks on your front door, who would take your breath away as the door opens up and you're going, I can't believe you're here. Oh, um, gosh, I would have to say, um, I think Pat Summit. Okay. I think Pat Summit, which, you know, the late Pat Summit. Uh, so I'm, I'm taking us into the, the another realm here with that. Um, but, you know, as somebody who grew up, you know, I was, I was coming of age right in the, in the late nineties and sort of watching the magic of, of the Tennessee women's basketball team um, and, and Pat Summit in particular. And, uh, and, you know, for all of her complexities, right. She was a phenomenal, phenomenal coach. And so I think, uh, I think I would be pretty shocked if Pat Summit knocked on my door. I would say that. All right. So we always end with, um, because I don't mind. I, I think feedback is really important for, for a lot of reasons. So we try to end the segment with, what did I get wrong? What did I miss? So in terms of our conversation, what did I wrong, get wrong, and what did I miss? Gosh, I love that. That's such an um, educator uh, question. Um, I don't think there's anything you got wrong, Larry. I, I think um, one thing that's just tricky about, and it was tricky to write, about this is that when I'm when we're trying to talk about intersectionality, which is the lens I was trying to bring to this work, I think is really hard to do in in actuality. And so what ends up happening is I think I, I talk most about gender when I'm doing interviews, because I think that's the most explicit and kind of obvious um, dialogue that's sort of out there in in both the kind of academic literature, but I think when we think about sports and the conversation of usually like women athletes and the progress they've made. Um, and I think, but I think there's a really a more complex story. And I think involving again, like I said, race and sexuality. And of course we could talk about socioeconomic status and all kinds of other things that I don't bring into the book. Um, but I would say, I think the missing piece often in conversations like this is how do we look at those things collectively and really do them all justice, which frankly is really, really hard. And we'd probably need like many hours of conversation to do. Well, you can have you can come back. I don't mind having any more <laughs> uh, hours of conversation. I want to thank, thank Rich Cohn, Michelle J. Mantle. The book is called "Denied Women's Sports and the Contradictions of Identity." I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time. Bye bye. The Artful Periscope Podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cristofaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her key.